Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to a very special September episode of Alan Moore Month. This Thursday and the previous Thursday and the next two Thursdays, we are here to talk about nothing but happy-go-fun-time Alan Moore. (laughs) Folks, my name is Jesse Starcher, and I want to thank you guys for, for first off, joining us, joining us live, if you have. And if you're catching us later on in your earbuds, thank you again for listening. We are discussing probably one of the least favorite uh, movie adaptations tonight of one of Alan Moore's work, and possibly one of the greatest written works of Alan Moore. Uh, so let me go ahead and enlighten you on the work we'll be talking about tonight, and that is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So in order to discuss this tonight, we have a panel of guests. Me and my co-host have brought on two special gentlemen in themselves. Let me first bring on our co-host. His name is Mark Radulich, the patriarch of the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. I think that's what we would name you, man, if you were part of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. We'd just call you the patriarch. What do you think of that? Well, you know, that's fine because they don't have any superpowers and neither do I. So that works out really, really well. Um, maybe it could be like that character in the comic book Legion. You know, like when I put on too much weight, I could go, I swell up like this. You know, and then get like, a skinny again. And then really swell up like this. He'll get that. He'll get seen again. Well, you remember that character? did you ever read Legion? Legion, you, Legion of Superheroes. No, Legion, the um, the the DC comic that originally featured Lobo. It was mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that that belongs to uh, belongs to Ronnie. How you doing, Ronnie? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Ronnie, real Ronnie. Quick, Ronnie, real quick. What's your Twitter? Give me your Twitter handle. Uh, at Screaming Boy PR. At Screaming Boy, like at like at Screaming Boy Public Relations. Uh, PR. <laughs> they, yeah. have a, they have a public relations department, actually. Don't judge. Don't <laughs> judge. <laughs> oh, at Screaming Boy PR. P as in Paul, mm-hmm. R as in Rob. Okay, got it. Thank right. you. Thank you. All right. So first off, Legion. <laughs> uh, Legion. Uh, no, Mark. Just to let you know, I. 
did not read any, hardly any DC in the early 90s, mid 90s, and I think I'm better off for it. Um, but, <laughs> but, and there's plenty of people that'll crucify me for saying that, that uh, plenty of friends out there. However, uh, the only, the, the person I thought you were referring to was the Marvel character who was not very fat at all. It was uh, Legion, who was the son of, well, he's the guy that caused all of the problems with Age of Apocalypse. And, hey, uh, you know, whatever you say, Mark, I have no idea what this Legion guy is. I'm going to have to Google him just to see. What he, he blew up? What did he do? He was, he'd just get fat or what? So Legion was on a mission to... Um uh, to uh, bring on some more heroes, bring in some people with superpowers to be part of this like intergalactic justice league. Um, okay. They weren't the Green Lantern Corps. That's a whole other thing, as we know. This was like, like I said, like an intergalactic police force, and um, they were recruiting people who had superhuman powers. And there was a guy, and they, and so they were having like tryouts basically. And there was one guy whose only power was he swelled up like a balloon. And I remember reading that and thinking that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I and in my head, the way he says his line is, I swell up like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like, he could have Sean Connery, I swell up like this. You know, like, I don't know what they were intending for this character. But in my mind, he always sounds the first way. Well, I cannot wait to well, post pictures of this on Facebook, so uh, I'm, I'm very glad you brought this up. Um, yeah, let me go ahead and we'll, we'll officially introduce uh, – we already know his Twitter, so you don't have to plug that tonight unless you want to do it again there, Ronnie Adams, of the Screaming Boy Podcast. You would. Hey, by golly, go for it. How the hell are you doing, Ronnie Adams? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, how, how are you? Uh, very glad you can make it again here tonight on Alan Moore Month. Talking League Always. of Extraordinary, yeah, man. Uh, and hey, joining us for the first time here on Alan Moore Month, it is the one, the only, the guy who brings you the four one one ground and pound every Sunday. His name is Robert Winfrey, sir. How are you doing? Uh, questioning every decision I've ever made in my life up to this point, but uh, other than that, <laughs> you come on here. We're going to discuss a great book. A fabulous movie. Fabulous. Shut up. <laughs> it's a fabulous movie. Well, we'll get we'll get the easy part out of the way. We're we're gonna we're gonna talk about the book first, and then we'll move on to the we'll we'll move on to the hard part, and that's that's Mark's and definitely Robert Winfrey and and uh, Ronnie Adams, and that's the movie part of things. That's their that, that's uh, their specialty. So I can't. Can I, can I just say that I thought I was done with Robert Winfrey for a while, okay? I thought <laughs> I thought after Peace Dragon or a summer wrap-up, I was done with your stank-ass, your moody non, nonsense for a few weeks. And here you are, right back into Alan Moore month, talking to me. You know, I say League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, not bad, and you're going, less building, and I'm going, fuck me. All right. So welcome to the show, Robert. Um, like you would have had Robert. to deal with me Tuesday anyway, and then next Thursday I was going to be here for V for Vendetta, and the Thursday after that for From Hell, because apparently I'm the only guy stupid enough to actually volunteer <laughs> to plug the hole in that show. <laughs> oh, man. What's happening Tuesday? What do, what do you mean? We don't have a show Tuesday. Isn't Magnificent Seven on Tuesday? No, Magnificent Seven doesn't come out until next Friday. Next Tuesday. Okay. 
Yeah, two Tuesdays. <laughs> okay. 27, buddy. Hold your horses. Scheduling doesn't me, usually okay? have until the end of the podcast, if I remember correctly. Winfrey, you're in my personal space, and I feel crowded. I feel like we need, we need some space. <laughs> eh, talk about your son a little bit. That'll make you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, I'm stepping in. I'm stepping in. I'm stepping in. Okay. Um, all right, so let's go ahead. We'll talk about uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now, anybody, Ronnie, any one of you guys know when this came out? I've got the physical copy in my hand, and I'm going down through it. 99? 1999. Uh, and we're only covering the first volume. And Winfrey, I know you said you were kind of, you know, uh, upset about the fact that we aren't covering both, or at least we we aren't. We can give that a nod here at the end. But uh, I was really looking forward to a three-hour discussion just about the, you know, 400-page epic that is Century. <laughs> I now see, I haven't. I don't think I've read that. And, and I you, you think I'm research. joking, Mark? By all means, look it up. Wow, 400 pages. Oh, something no, like I that. I'll find, the, I'll find the exact number so I can be as accurate as possible. And that is – is that volume three or is that uh, – oh, man. That I know is – hang on. I, four. Uh, here's volumes. Do, do, do. Volume one, volume two, the Black Dossier, volume three, century. 216-page okay. epic. Excuse me. Okay. 372-page yeah. uh, chapters, each a self-contained narrative. Released, they were intended to be released a year apart, starting in 09. Uh, the one for 10 got delayed, but they were released in 09, 11, and then 12. All right. Now, like I said, we're only touching on the first volume tonight, which is kind of like our origin story, where we get to figure out who the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen are. And Let's talk about our creators real quick. Alan Moore, we've already done talked about. I, I, I'm sure I can make more jokes about Alan Moore and grind that into the ground, but I'm not going to. Uh, you know, fantastic writer. The, the, the dude can write, so he is the pinner of our tale tonight. However, we'll talk a little bit about Kevin O'Neill, which is somebody that I do not know much about. Uh, I watched an interview tonight, and it was discussing a little bit about how Alan Moore had found – Kevin O'Neill, uh, and decided that he was going to be the guy who drew the comic. Apparently, this guy's got some uh, he's got some experience writing over in Britain, I believe. And, uh, he used to write 2000 AD. Ronnie, is that a comic book you've ever picked up and read? Actually, it is. Okay. Is it like an anthology? Or, or how, how is that published. I cannot recall. I won't say it's an anthology. Like they put a bunch of stuff in there. Yeah, I think it, I think so. I just remember getting it from the library. Okay. Um, so different different stories in it, or was it all like because that's familiar stuff with when it comes to like Judge Dredd. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's a character that came out of 2000 AD. Uh, I, th- I think it's like a, a, an anthology series. How about you, Robert Winfrey? You ever read anything? Kevin O'Neill, prior to picking up this book, you ever heard of him before? Not really. I'm not the biggest consumer of comics uh, as a general rule. My knowledge is mostly either ancillary or secondhand. Now, we had Mark and 
we clearly had Mark on the last episode, so we had Ronnie on the last episode also. Let me get your take here, man. Alan Moore, what uh, what have you read that really strikes you as his best work? Uh, what are, What are your thoughts on this guy? I think probably his best work is actually here in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He gets to kind of play around with all the things that make him great. He gets to excel in his own kind of chosen medium. I very much enjoy Watchmen as a general rule. Uh, Unfortunately, I read V for Vendetta after seeing the movie, which complicates things in a couple of senses, and we'll talk about that next week when we actually get to V. Uh, His run on Hellblazer, I believe, is uh, somewhat widely regarded. And I think he was the only guy that made the Swamp Thing actually interesting. Yeah. I would say that you're probably right there. I can remember that I've never had any interest in picking up a Swamp Thing comic until Golden Age Dave came to me and was like, look at this, I've got the Alan Moore run on, on Swamp Thing. I'm like, he did Swamp Thing? Like, yeah, he did Swamp Thing. Uh, so anything he touches, he seems to do a fairly decent job in if it's a failing property or it's a struggling property, he does a, a great job to at least breathe a little bit of life into it. Uh, I, I have, I'm going to go ahead and say it again. If he would have never touched my favorite image comic ever Supreme, I would have been happy. That's the only time I can remember getting so displeased with Alan Moore. It was that particular instance, but anybody who's ever heard me over on source material understands that that is how I'll, I'll preach that ad nauseum. Um, also, right. as kind of an enjoyer of the perverted and the perverse, uh, Miracle Man has a – I have oh. a slight affection for Miracle Man. Let me just phrase it like that. Yes, yes. If you guys – if anybody out there listening has the chance to pick that up or find it online or whatever, give it a, give it a look and give it a good read. Um, another one, Golden Age Dave, my buddy Golden Age Dave. He, was, he knew about Alan Moore way earlier than I did. And Miracle Man was one of the ones he was trying to get the whole series of, which I think he actually completed at one point. So he, he, he definitely says that that's a, a tremendous story. So leave, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, how about, uh, how about these guys? Let's go ahead and we'll break down who the League, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen are. I guess I should probably do a quick plot synopsis, which is it's, – it's, your typical origin story, I say typical, I mean, we got a, 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 a person who wants to get together a team and puts this team together to go fight a, uh, a the, the, hidden, um, the hidden enemy, I guess you would say. And then it turns out that the people that got the team together in the first place were, kind of were the bad guys after all. So... We, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, are pulled from characters pulled from uh, Victorian era literature. Is that right? I, I think I saw Mark use that term. Is that is that right, Mark? Yes. Okay. That's and what the wiki told me. That's what the wiki told me. Internet. That's what the internet's <laughs> are for. Uh, so let's go ahead. We'll talk. Our one of the first characters. It kind of strikes me. And we'll just you know bat this about. Uh, and that is our female protagonist. Um, her name, I want to say, now see, I should have the characters in front of me. One of you guys speak up. What was the... What, 
Say that again. My name is Mina, Mina Harkin. Okay. Now, Winfrey, she got back to her maiden name by that point. Yeah, I think it was Great Murray. Have to look this up. Because no, the, the character's okay. Mina Harker. I'm thinking the wife of Jonathan Harker from Bram Stoker's Dracula. But she's divorced yeah, from by the movie. start of the show, and I don't remember if she, and I don't know if she had uh, changed changed back to her maiden name for the purposes of the novel. I right. It's 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 Wilhelmina Murray in the comic book. I was thinking Mina Harker from the film. She's known as mm-hmm. same character, different surname. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, the broad from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> this is now. See, I have no idea who. Uh, when I was reading this, I did not know which character she was. Um, when I remember this book coming out, it was. I remember the buzz around this. Book. This was back in the day when Wizard Magazine was around, and there was a lot of, a lot of uh, like tidbits that were kind of being shown in Wizard Magazine throughout the issues of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and how a lot of that was again was pulled back from uh, from history and a lot of literary writings. And there's Easter eggs throughout this book, and I was trying to find a list today of the Easter eggs that they put in here, stuff that wasn't, you know, talked about or wasn't any main story, main part of the plot, but they, Alan Moore made a, you know, a, a point to kind of put those in there just to kind of build upon that universe that the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, were in. So, Willem, Mina Murray, uh, I'll start with Ronnie. What do, you, what do you remember here, or what do you think of this, this character as Alan Moore portrays her? Um, I, it was definitely different from, the, from what I remember the book, you know, from Dracula. She was a little bit of a stronger character. She was, uh, she was a vampire, so that was different. <laughs> yeah, and now here in this particular tome, if I, the only thing that we see is that she wears this red scarf. Right. I don't believe in volume one they actually go into what it was that – why she always continued to wear the red scarf. And I don't think she was right. – um, like Dracula. She's trying to cover up the bite marks. Right. I didn't, I didn't even catch that – You know, I didn't even catch – the like I said, I didn't know who the heck she was. I, I am. I'll, I'll go ahead and say this: book reading is not my thing. Comic book reading—that's a different story. <laughs> All right, so you book learning. That's sorry, right. I have to reconsider I, my entire worldview after this shocking revelation. <laughs> I, I must for book learning. What? I've never read Dracula. I've never read. Oh, you're missing out. Now, see, yeah, I. Yeah, See, the only reason that I that I put together she was a she was a vampire was because of the name. Showed, well, the name and didn't they show the bite marks in the in the first volume? Okay, I don't hang, hang on, a, hang on a second. Let me clear this up because I am a professional podcaster. And I do. Who wants to punch me right now? I <laughs> do research me. before the podcast starts. And what I found out is, is that this character in the Bram, in Bram Stoker's Dracula book, Robert, if I fuck this up, fill in the blanks for me. Um, I'm just waiting for you to trip and fall on your face. It's okay. <laughs> in the horse she wrote in on, sir. Um, she gets bitten by Dracula. She starts to turn into a vampire. Um, 
she's eventually she they eventually kill Dracula and the spell goes away and she's saved, but she still has the bite marks on her neck. So the whole thing with the scarf is that in in, in what they they talk about they allude to this in the comics is that she's had this whole run in with Dracula and being bitten and all of that. Uh, but that's all in the past now, but she's still got the bite marks to, to show for it, and that's why she wears the scarf and won't take it off. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, okay. The I, I didn't catch that at all in this first tome. I thought she was like a uh, – she just – she's just – they kept talking about how she – I thought she uh, uh, got raped or something, and that is why – she was, uh, and that no, is why she was. What's that? <laughs> That's page two of the comic. Okay, all right. Yeah. It's not an Alan Moore comic without rape. That's the truth. Um, <laughs> so, okay, we got Mina. Fr- Mina, I want to call her Harker. I don't know why, but um, Mina, uh, Mina, yeah, it's Mina Harker, Mina Murray. Um, well, Robert, do you have any insight as to other than what you've already kind of re- revealed here for Mina? No, not really. Uh, she serves as a very important narrative piece to the story in that she is kind of the bridge from uh, you know, the normal world into the somewhat more supernatural. She is familiar with it, but is not quite as fully immersed in the you know, weirdness is that you're going to get with Captain Nemo or Quartermain mm-hmm. or Jekyll. Uh, so again, she and she also serves as, generally speaking, kind of the emotional touchstone for the movie. Movie, the movie is god awful for the story. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more thing they completely botched, mind you, when we get to that. She uh, no, very much emotional... puts me in the mind of the. Uh, she almost puts me in the mind of the leader. Of this group, while being yeah. there, are a lot of great people here. She yeah. say that. I feel like she's like the brains of the outfit. She's sort of the the she's sort of the central nervous system of this whole thing, sort of pushing it along because she's surrounded by these really oddball characters who, without sort of, sort of an anchor pulling them in a direction, would just go off into the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. which makes her. Uh, when the invisible, well, and the invisible man uh, turns on them in the second volume and attacks her, it actually makes that a bit more emotionally uh, heart wrenching, and actually you wind up kind of cheering for Hyde's inevitable justice that he wreaks on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's talk about the invisible man, uh, Holly Griffin. Now, again, I've never read a book that had the invisible man in it, so, gentlemen. Uh, if, Robert Winfrey. It's the, actual, you, it's the actual Invisible Man. There's no book with him, and it's called the Invisible Man. <laughs> whoa, whoa, no, no, stop! You're gonna confuse the good people out there, Mark. <laughs> okay, sorry. Allow, uh, I, I have to get into this very briefly because there's the, the character they're using for the purposes of this book is the Invisible Man. It's a story by H.G. Wells. Uh, very famous. Was adapted into a movie during you know during the universe, the classic universal era of monster movies. However, there is a book by Ralph Ellison simply titled invisible man, which is the exa- It is not at all 
a science fiction story in the same vein of The Invisible Man. Invisible Man deals with the nature of humanity, social justices, uh, specifically in the... what? I haven't read that book in forever. Hang on. Uh, specifically set in the Deep South. Why am I not given a time? Okay, when was it published? That'll tell me what I want to know. Yeah, it was published in 52, so... The point being, they're very different stories. And to anyone out there, if you're looking to read about The Invisible Man, the the V in the title is extraordinarily important. I mean, the supreme irony being that qualifying him as The Invisible Man negates the entire point of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which functionally deals with, oh, I'm black, therefore I'm invisible. By singling him out to be The Invisible Man, it actually negates the underlying artistic point. All right. All right. Uh, now, so there is so clearly this is a guy that's straight. So there is a book called The Invisible Man, right, Mark? Yes, written by H. G. Wells. Yeah, and now, I wanted to hear I wanted to hear Mark say yes. That's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but okay, so we got The Invisible Man, Mark Rattledge, sir. Would you like to describe our Invisible Man and this this uh, this shady character? That's shady. <laughs> when we when we meet this sociopath. He's living in, um, oh gosh, uh, was it a uh, girls' boarding school in Scotland? Oh my it? gosh! And yeah, and, and and he's and he of course is invisible, and he's having his way with any girl he chooses, and they think they're being, um, they're having immaculately uh, conceived. Yeah, thank you, immaculate conception by the Holy Ghost. Um, turns out it's it's just a creepy invisible man. <laughs> Oh man, and we get treated to quite the panel where he is having his way with one of the ladies, and mm. she's mid-air. We'll just put it that way. Um, and so, a lot of uh, just a lot of horrid stuff going on there. Uh, and they recruit this guy. This, you know, they recruit the Invisible Man. I'm about to get down here in just a second. Um, <laughs> is that that Android phone you were talking about going off? Yes, I hate this thing. <laughs> Ronnie's a Ronnie's a Ronnie's a staunch iPhone, and somehow he ended up with a Android. Um, all right. So tomorrow, let's get my it. friend. Tomorrow is it coming back? All right. Yeah. Next up, we'll talk about Alan Quartermain. Quatermain, however you say his name, because there's no R in there, I noticed, and I, I, I tend to pronounce it Quatermain. Uh, Alan Quatermain, Ronnie, uh, what do you think of Alan Quatermain here? This guy, he's he's down on his luck. He is definitely the the <laughs> the epitome of, uh, from what I can tell, not washed up, but just old and um, should be retired by now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm uh, not going to played him in the movie. There's <laughs> Robert. Winfrey I was really hoping you would have never brought that stupidity into the public light, but <laughs> I was. I don't understand. That movie would have taken on a whole different tone. The only thing, the only thing I could Especially, see is the Incredible Mr. Limpet going through my head, and I'm Mr. Furley doing the karate. <laughs> Imagine the faces Don Knotts would have made in that movie to have this shit going on. It would have been great. 
I no, really, he I, only would have done that when the cameras weren't rolling. <sighs> that movie easily cracked a billion dollars with Don Knotts in the leading role. It may possibly uh, be a, a better instance, possibly a better instance of a movie. I don't know. Um, yeah, Quartermain is addicted to opium when they first find mm-hmm. this guy in order to recruit him. Uh, and he's the Quartermain of old. Robert Winfrey, literature historian, at least you know on my show here, on our show, do you have any insight to the literary side of Alan Quartermain? Uh, Alan Quartermain is very much a product of uh, the old, like, dime store novels. He's the original Indiana Jones. And when there's uh, a couple movies, uh, Alan Quartermain and Solomon's Mind or something like that. There's more than a few. Yeah, there's him and the King Solomon's Mind. There's... He's a character that get again prior to you know the mid '80s and Harrison Ford donning the fedora. That was Alan Quartermain's role. He was the adventurer. He went you know through Africa, through the Middle East for Queen and Country prior to World War II. We just live in a world now where George Lucas and Steven Spielberg essentially one-upped him, and he's not really been relevant since. Mm-hmm. Mark Radlich, any any insight, uh, any comments on uh, Alan Quartermain here? Um, it's when we talk about the movie, I'll have a little bit more to say in, in as far as contrast and comparison. Okay. Uh, I was a, I was a, I, I, however, I was just a little surprised about how, um, when you just how got they made him in, in, in the first part of the comic, and you know she's dragging him along. He's like, oh, my opium, I need oh woman, stop dragging me, and that's why I was like, not, not, not. not. Oh, I can't imagine Don Knotts being an opium addict. <laughs> Wasn't that just Don Knotts? <laughs> I, I just like, I, I think, like, how do you as a casting director or a producer read this comic and go, so in the beginning we have this frail old man that gets to opium. You know who I think we should get to play him? Sean fucking Connery, who's a man <laughs> Well, the, the first thing they did was like, okay, we're going to cut the whole opium thing out. And I, right. you, I knew, <laughs> wait, 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 Mark, you assume that the people who adapted this read it? What in the world <laughs> led you to that conclusion? I don't I'm on drugs! Um, <laughs> the thing about it is, as I was not uh, familiar with, with Alan Quartermain before reading League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I knew of the character, um, but I didn't know. I, I knew, like, like Robert said, he was more of a Indiana Jones-style before Indiana Jones, but I had never really read anything with him or about him. Um, this one definitely painted him in a different light than what people are used to, because um, as I was going to say, he's very much the fallen hero in this. Um, right. He's a yeah. drug addict. He's he's washed up. I mean, well, not washed up. Well, yeah, washed up. But uh, he's he's old. He's frail. He's not the hero he used to be, um, and that's why he's being dragged along without his opium. Stop it. I need my opium woman. It's like the he's that aging gunslinger motif where they have to pull out of yeah. retirement. They got to go rescue him from the bar where he's at the bottom of a whiskey bar, uh, whiskey bottle. It's um, not even, he's not even the aging gunslinger. He's just he's just I don't know. He 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 he, he, he gave up. You know, yeah. he's not uh, he's uh, not the man. He's not the honorable man he used to be, or yeah, you know, he's not the hero he used to be. But I don't ever get this. But when they clean him up later and he's got a nice haircut and everything, mm-hmm. he's 
the things I got from him, and I still don't get Sean Connery from him. Uh, not not from him at that point, but he's still like a proper British gentleman, not mm-hmm. a barroom. Like the way I don't know, the way that I read it, the the comic, the character, he is complaining a lot about how Mina is too manly, and. I mean, and, that, and, he, and, it does, and suddenly until towards the end of the book, where he, like, the end of the series, where he's kind of doing anything remotely manly or heroic, you know, um, when they when they go and they when they investigate Fu Manchu, and uh, you know, and they're looking for the uh, the little bit of battery thing is that's going to make that, that they're the Corvite. Were sent to, what was it? The Corvite. Corvite. Um, then it starts. You start to see that part of you know, the adventure sort of bubble up again. But until that time, I just got a lot of grumpy old man. Another actor who maybe could have played that role, he would have had to lose a lot of weight. Walter Matthau, Zach Lemon. Either one of the grumpy old worked for the kind of stuff they have him doing for the first part of that book. Weren't Lemon and Matthau dead when they made the movie, though? My they point been being. <laughs> They would have been if they were in it afterwards. Do I need to go a list of alive actors in 2003, 2002 to make my point here? I just, like, he's not he's not a manly adventurer through a lot of this. He sort of comes out of him towards the end, but, you know, in the, in the midst of all the danger that's happening. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it was a weird fight by Alan Moore to do it that way. Because it's just like, it's, I'm just thinking of the pitch here. Hey, let's do a Victorian era Justice League. Okay, let's make one of our main characters a complete fop for most of the book. He doesn't really. I, I mean, other than his previous adventures, this guy doesn't really have. It doesn't seem like he has much of you know a skill set. Uh, so. Yeah. Like, I, like, like, I don't understand what the mentality was here. Hey, we need an art. We we need a group of specialized individuals. To, to take on the extra special effects of the world. Find the oldest man living and see what he can do. <laughs> now, we are Americans. Uh, these, these characters were brought uh, you know, and chosen by a, you know, a, a British author. So a lot of these characters may hold some weight across the pond uh, and be a little bit different from the way we're viewing it. Uh, so I, I want to go ahead and put that out there. I, I, I don't know what... Hang on, old old. Okay. Three year old man. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> if you choose this character, if, if, if in this world he's at like the height of his adventures and the height of his manliness when they find him, and that's the and that's the guy they pull out of the bar or they pull out of the opium den, I'm okay with it. But they went with Grandpa for some odd reason. Well, and let's then just I don't say, what? Well, let's just say, like in Grandpa the book. Let's say in twenty years. 20 years, you know, they they write some somewhat of a similar uh, a similar story, okay? And because of the Crystal Skull, uh, Indiana Jones just fell off the face of the earth. Nobody wants to hear a story about this guy, and he's just you know, you know an old beat up dude. And somebody pulls him and puts him in a story with a bunch of uh, American heroes. What do you think? Does it hold weight for you then? No, because once okay. again, if you're Okay, if you pick Harrison Ford like now, I'm not interested. Go back to Harrison Ford via Temple of Doom. I'm okay with it. 
You know, okay. I mean, God, that, that, that movie was great, but give me, I mean, don't, I, I'm not ageist, but don't, but don't tell me we're going to go on our romping yeah, adventure sure. with Walter Matthau and Zach Lemmon. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Well, I don't know what grumpy old man movie you're watching, but that was a romping adventure. <laughs> hey, the, the search Walter for Matthau. Catfish Hunter is passed down throughout, you know, lore. All right. <laughs> I will not have you besmirch the great quest. For the catfish, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, maybe, movies. maybe we should write 20th Century Fox and say, you had the right idea with Sean Connery, but you should have gone even older and more old people in the movie. And let, let's send them like a fantasy cast of who we think should be in the next League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But it has to be all old actors. We'll get Angela Lansbury. You know, we'll get... Uh, God, who's fucking ridiculously old now? Um... You work, on, you, you work on that while right, we're talking here. We're going to move to the next character. You you go ahead and do your uh, Googling. Um, Robert Winfrey, Captain Nemo, my friend, please. Uh, what do you think of this guy? I'm, I'm very happy with the presentation of Captain Nemo in the book. I, I, there's a lot of things about it that I don't hate in the movie. It just gets complete – as a character, he gets completely ignored, functionally yes. speaking, and set up poorly. Mm. But Nemo's character is served very well in this particular book. He's very kind of antisocial. He doesn't like a lot of what society has become, the direction that it's going. But he fights to preserve life. Uh, it's a big part of his appearance in 20,000 Leagues. He's a very interesting character. He was a really great choice to include in this, not just because of his you know, scientific genius as well, but because of what he represents, you know, the, the type of person that he is. And I always get a kick out of his first being Ishmael. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and only Mark and, gets the reference. And most likely. <laughs> no, I get it. I certainly do not. <laughs> For those of you who don't, Ishmael is the narrator from Moby Dick. Mhm. All right. Um, did uh, uh, one of the things I found interesting about Captain Nemo is the fact that he was, you know, he he has no alliance with the British Empire in any way, and he doesn't have to help these guys out. But just like Robert said, he knew what the side of good was. He knew what the right side was to pick in this particular fight. Uh, and it's cool to see, like, I mean, he is, he's the guy with, he, he's like your Iron Man. Uh, uh, this guy's coming up with all these crazy inventions. I believe in this particular volume, he has like, he's one of the ones with a machine gun. Uh, he's got the submarine. You know, this, this particular piece takes place back in the late 1800s. And uh, it's the late 1800s, right? Like right before the turn of the century. And a lot of this stuff that this guy has, like he's inventing all this crazy, these uh, crazy weapons and these, these, this, this neat stuff. In the movie, we get the car and everybody's like, what the hell is that thing? I was saying the same thing. I've never seen a car with two wheels in the front. But hey, that's a, we'll, we'll get to the movie here in a few. Um, but yeah, he had all these crazy inventions, a very, very neat character. Uh, Mark, I want to save the best for last for you. And that is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Um, I really like, I, 
as far as characters that I, that I enjoyed in the book, I really liked the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I love, obviously, this is an imprint that they would later use for the Hulk, you know, the idea of the, you know, the, 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 the frightened scientist uh, of, of this monster within, and, of course, the monster that just fucking tears me. <laughs> Man, but, does he yeah. ever do that in this book? But you know what's hilarious is you never really saw the Hulk, you know, because it was Marvel Comics and it was aimed for kids. You never saw the Hulk really get bloody. You know, he would bash things, he would smash things, um, but but it but it wasn't gross. And this, and as much as I'm not a fan, I'm not a gore hound, I was I, I enjoyed the gross bloodshed of, oh, of, of this thing. Like. I'm just thinking, like, if they, you know, again, just thinking about how they, they shot the movie and everything. Like, they, they couldn't, unless they wanted an R rating, um, which would have limited the audience to a degree. It uh, wouldn't have hurt it that much. much. Yeah, I was going to say, it would probably sell, like, freaking <laughs> gangbusters now. Could you just, well, could you just imagine a Hulk-like creature tearing people limb from limb and there's blood everywhere? At one point well, in the yeah, book. But I'm a gorehound. <laughs> I've seen it. It's so great. It's so bloody that the Invisible Man is visible because he's covered in blood. <laughs> <laughs> and so people, I, I, and I love I love the idea of Doctor Jekyll um, just being unsure of himself, and you know, and there's a couple of exchanges he has. I think my favorite part of the book with him is when Mina is, is basically trying to, you know, kind of Black Widow with with uh, with uh, Bruce Banner from um, Age of Ultron. She was like, yeah, I need the beast to come out, okay? And, you know, and uh, at one point, you know, so, he, so she's, like, taunting him, basically, and he changes into, into Hyde, and Hyde's got her by the arm, and they're like, oh, no, what now? And she's like, I got this. Hyde, you're hurting my arm. Let's go. And he's like, Bruh. Yeah. It, it, was, it was very much a Black Widow Hulk moment, which I, which I enjoyed. Ronnie that Adams. relationship actually gets expanded uh, and expounded upon in Volume Two to a relatively heartbreaking conclusion. Actually, mm-hmm. oh really? I mean, see, it's been so long since I read two. I I picked this up. I think it was uh, it was probably mid two thousands, if I remember correctly. So I, I it's been a while since I've read the first volume and the second volume. It's even been a, it's been longer. But um, anyway. Ronnie Adams, what do you think of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? He, he's definitely the most interesting character in the book for me uh, just because of, of the duality of the character. I mean, there's a lot more that they, you know, that can be done with him. So um, he's, he's my favorite character in the whole thing. And, and like Robert said, there's a you know, heartbreaking end to the, to the whole relationship between him and, and Mina. So it's uh, – he's – He's a good. He, they more did him justice with that when he wrote him. Okay, uh, Robert, you got anything you'd like to add? No, nothing else apart from that. Uh, Hyde's a ve- the the duality between Jekyll and Hyde is very good. Uh, Hyde as a character, and one of the things I prefer about Mr. Hyde in this version relative to virtually every other cinematic representation of him is that he's not a moron. Yes. Yeah. Jekyll is most certainly the brains. He is a doctor. He is... Oh, he's not quite a Puritan, but he's a very... Uh, I forget the... Re- there's a religious and sociological term for him that I forget, uh, which is, a, I mean, borderline hypocritical. 
Now, I don't think he's a Puritan, though. It's I don't know. I, I'd, I'd really have to double check what it was. But I read a wonderful essay on it. Presbyterian. I don't think it's purely religious. So hang on. I'm gonna let it go. But in most cinematic representations, they they change Hyde into the Hulk, where you know he's he's barely sapient. You know, it's like. He strings two words together, and you feel you should give him a gold star. Uh, Hyde is yeah. very much a sentient, thoughtful, individual personality from Jekyll, and they actually do him justice in that sense that this is not, you know, roid rage, Hulk smash, I black out, and then I wake up later. Hyde is very much, again, he's very intelligent, he's very thoughtful, he's very emotional, He's and a very different character from Jekyll, not simply a representation of his animal side. Yeah, he's he's very true to his self. In other words, he knows he's a monster. And that interview that I watched with Alan Moore, where he was discussing, uh, go, uh, you know, writing writing this character, he said that he felt that Hyde was more of a honest character than mm. you know than Jekyll was. Uh, so he enjoyed writing and, and I, I can't, I cannot express how much I, I love how much he's just an asshole. I mean, this guy is a jerk. Uh, I'm talking about Mr. Hyde here. He's just, he, he would insult people and he's just downright mean. And, and I love, I love that. I loved him as a character when it came to that, because that was definitely different from the, the Hulk, the incredible Hulk that I was used to. Um, from a, all right, well, well, let's hang on. From a strictly literary standpoint, Robert, wasn't Hyde, wasn't the, the duality between Jekyll and Hyde supposed to be a symbol of um, almost like man's inhuman, a reflection of man's inhumanity? You know, it has this proper facade, this, you know, this, um, this, this facade of uh, civility, but underneath that, you know, humanity was just this raging beast, this this completely destructive force. That's a completely well, that valid interpretation of the work of the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Well, let me kind of like, wasn't he kind of like Jekyll's? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? What he was kind of like his id. He, you know, he gave into his most, you know, animalistic, you know. I want what I want, and I want it now, so nothing's going to stop me from getting it. Some of that is true. It's also like, uh, as Jesse mentioned, Jekyll, as he is portrayed, is a very vain, very, uh, again, borderline hypocritical character in the sense that Mm -hmm. the line that stands out to me, again, from this analytical essay I read several years ago, and I forget what it was. I really wish I could remember because it was really well done. Uh, Jekyll's the kind of person who would refrain from accepting alcohol in his own home, but he'd only have the alcohol out to be offered so that he could reject it. Hyde is very much more in tune with the fact that, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a bag of dicks. (laughs) (laughs) And he's, and he's perfectly happy with it. Well, and that's one of the interesting things about the book is that while Hyde is certainly more monstrous and, you know, violent, there's very, there are very clearly lines and circumstances wherein there is a bit of value to Hyde and his existence 
uh, directly opposed to Jekyll and his at various points. So, again, if you haven't read it and you're so inclined, it's a very interesting piece of fiction. Set the whole stage for the werewolf root, uh, motif that wound up, you know, again, turned into werewolf mythology as well as, uh, you know, big green dude smashing things in terrible so, uh, movies. So we're having a very high-level literary discussion. This sort of AP English discussion. I'm about to tank it and send it right <laughs> into the gutter. Hey, <laughs> hey, Jesse. Remember that song, Doggy Dog, um, No Front? Now picture Hyde. Picture him in a basketball jersey with shorts and high tops coming out to No Front by Doggy Dog. Ah, there you go. Ah, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. I went to public. <laughs> All right. So we've, we broke down our characters. We, we have some interesting villains here, too. And, I mean, well, uh, the, the most important one, and we're going to go ahead and spoil this. Uh, this is a big part of the book, and it's a big part of the movie. But we end up finding out that our main villain, as portrayed in the book, Mark mentioned Fu Manchu. However, there is somebody else. You know, tugging the strings that's that's part of the, the the British government, as you will. And that is one doctor. Is it James Moriarty? It is Professor James Moriarty. One of my favorite Professor. villains ever. Please, Moriarty's wax, awesome. Wax episodic there, Robert Winfrey. What, what do you think of his portrayal? Uh, this is a great portrayal of Moriarty and very much in tune with who he is as a character. Uh, Moriarty, for those of you who are unaware, is generally con- is considered the, you know, the arch nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. He features prominently in a couple of stories, in particular what was meant to actually be the final installment in the in the story of Sherlock Holmes, which was uh, the Last Problem. So I believe that's the title. It cu- it uh, culminates with him and Moriarty in a struggle over the Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland. They both go over. I mean, again, the, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually intended that to be the final story involving Holmes as well, because he did not believe that he could ever, that Holmes would either be interested in anything beyond Moriarty because they were that evenly matched, or that he as an author could necessarily craft stories as interesting as what he did for the professor. And he's very, again, uh, intelligence is a bit of an understatement. He matches wits with. Holmes on a regular basis and occasionally comes out on top. He has these you know, vast empires. If you want another example, uh, my favorite portrayal of Moriarty actually comes from Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Uh, Jared Harris does, a, mm. does his character a wonderful service in the film and manages to you know steal his scenes from the scene-chewing Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> At least from where I sat. Uh, no, he's again, and so these mul- these kind of multi-level. Uh, you know, I'm running an undergrad. I'm you know running a criminal organization. I am also running you know MI6. There's yeah. MI5 in this one. I mean, so you know, utilizing different aliases, different identities, hiding in the shadows, profiting at the very top level. I mean. This is Moriarty to a T, and he is uh, was a wonderful choice of villain, and Alan Moore, at, from a writing perspective, absolutely did the character justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, what I took from it, and I may have been, I may have looked at it a little bit differently. I thought that the government had put him in place to be a villain, so that the the, the government could have something, uh, pretty much be able to use him, so they could control 
the dark side of London, pretty much. So they said, okay, Moriarty, you're going to go over here. You're going to be, uh, you know, our public enemy number one. However, we're going to put you on the payroll so that even though everybody's going to consider you the bad guy, we're actually just using you to kind of watch over what's going on and kind of report back to us. And then, you know, you can see Moriarty at one point, he's conflicted about the fact like, hey, they put me in power. Now, granted, he's devious. There's no doubt about that. Him and Holmes going at it, they do, you know, they do uh, an homage to that in this book, albeit it's only like, I think, three or four pages long, but gives you uh, a a bit of history and obviously where the where the character came from. Uh, but anyway, he kind of struggles with the fact that at least it seemed kind of humanizing to me that he's like, well, you know, at one point do you become the villain and what point are you the good guy? Uh, and he's like, until finally he's just like, well, screw it. I'm going to bomb London. Of course, I'm sure he had that. That was all put into place. That's where the Corvite came or came into play. The Corvite, by the way, folks, is this mystical element or whatever, some kind of a uh, uh, MacGuffin that will allow you to raise, uh, basically build an airship, which is totally unforeseen, and, and you can use that ship to bomb things. So that was the whole point of trying to get the Corvite in the first place. Uh, Moriarty gets a hold of it, launches his death ship, and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen are tasked with the uh, with the purpose of trying to stop Moriarty, which culminates on this tremendous battle on this huge airship um and uh mark radlich moriarty you got any got anything you'd like to add um i just want a small correction the whole thing with the corvite was it allowed them to go into it allowed them to take flight it was a battery uh, it, was it was a battery that it was a battery that projected things into uh, into the atmosphere. It just goes. You know, it just continues goes. to go. Yeah, it, <laughs> Anti-gravity. It itself itself. Um, but that's, that's you know, in the end, that's, you know, spoiler alert, that's how they defeat the guy is, you know, he ends, they, they break the uh, the case that's got the Corvite in it. Um, Moriarty jumps on it. It sends, it sends him into the atmosphere uh, even further while they all jump into the balloon and abandon the ship. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, in some of the future volumes, Moriarty is seen orbiting the Earth in a frozen block of ice, still ho- still holding the battery. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful stuff. All right, well, we're going to switch it over to movie mode here real quick. Just uh, I want to do one more question around here for you guys, and that is, do you have a favorite part of Volume 1? We'll start with Ronnie. Oh, gosh. Um, it, Skip me and I'll, I'll you're going to think you're going to think. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. It's Mark been, it's been a while since I've read it. I tried to read it beforehand, but I just couldn't get it done. Google images um, will help you out here in the next five minutes. So go for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mark Radlitz, what do you, what do you think, man? You got a favorite part of the book? Um, I like the end, you know, um, it's, just, it's a bit of a slow go in the beginning. Um, uh, I, I did, a very dark part of my of my sense of humor and personality got a kick out of the Invisible Man in the in the uh, home for uh, <laughs> home for wayward girls. Oh man, you guys aren't going to sit here and tell me that as a teenager growing up, when you found out about the Invisible Man, that is exactly what you were going to do as 
Uh, well, I shouldn't say that exactly because there you might and there might be extreme might be lines you may not cross. <laughs> well, you're going into you're going into some <laughs> whatever. I'm not going to be the bad guy on this podcast. You guys go ahead and pretend you would have never late. done that. Too late, too late, <laughs> sir. Who knows you guys if you could get away with it would rape the fuck out of every girl you ever met. <laughs> I never said that. Here. I I, I backtracked. I backtracked. Hey, as the good Mormon boy on this panel, I object to this entire line of thought. I'll back you up. That was a good idea. Wow, what a, what a concept. Uh, um, however, I thought the idea of introducing Jesus. <laughs> Rattling the broadcasting, everybody. Um, I backtracked. I swear I did. The, the idea of introducing an invisible man. I mean, it, it's true to form. Not that any of us would do this sort of thing, but if you're a scumbag kind of a person and you happen to be invisible, this is something you might do if you're a sociopath. And I was amused by that. Okay. Um, also, also, the end of the book was a lot of fun. Um, I was wondering, I mean, like I said, I knew nothing about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I, I got it in a gift, as a gift basket, essentially, from uh, my wife's best friend who you know, just sent me a bunch of comics. And I was like, ooh. I should do an entire podcast about this. How my mind thinks. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I didn't know where it was going or really what it was going to be all about. And it was a slow go at first. But once it got going and I'm like, oh, OK, I see where this is headed now. And they got to the, you know, the, the grand finale. And so you have this army of Asian guys on like kites, dying kites, flying at this big you know, tank in the sky. And they board it with it. With, with, they board it with the hot air balloon and all that, and then, you know, and hides just running through the ship, tearing people to pieces. Oh man! I I mean I could if you're I'm always going to be a movie person first and, and more of a producer than anything else. And so if someone pitches me an idea and it just shows me that end sequence, I'm like, yeah, I see that. I see that on film. I see the hot air balloon. I see hide cutting a path through guys. Um, you know, I see the final fight between Mina and Quartermain and uh, Moriarty, um, you know, and then him flying out of the ship and everything. And then, you know, as the ship blowing up behind them or falling out of the sky, rather, if this is my, if this is my version in Hollywood, it's blowing up out of the sky and there's dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, they're trying, they're trying to get off the ship before they fucking die. I think it's great. You know, it was very cinematic and very fun to to, uh, to look at. All right. Very good. Ro- Robert Winfrey, sir, you got a favorite part? Not so much an individual part as just kind of the relationship between Hyde and Jekyll and Mina is a very interesting kind of study. In that it's well written. It's a good way to humanize a character that could otherwise be just kind of monstrous. Uh, the, and the added dynamic of, you know, well, because Jekyll and Hyde, and again, this is not a Hulk banner thing where the Hulk is, depending on one's individual perspective, more a subset of Banner's personality. Jekyll and Hyde are two distinct personalities. They are, I mean, this is kind of the classic dissociative identity disorder, if you choose to subscribe to that actually being a thing, and well, I happen to. So it's uh, it's very well handled, and then, uh, like Mark said, the the final fight sequence is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for as much as, and this is really odd for me because for as much as Alan Moore's 
work gets bastardized and destroyed with very few exceptions when it comes to transitioning it into film, he writes very cinematic stories. Mm. My brother's giving me the stink eye. I, met, I did say generally. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ronnie, Ronnie Adams, sir. Did, was there a particular image that you found? Probably just, I'll have to agree with that, that in fight scene and, and, uh, and definitely Hyde ripped tearing through everybody. That was, that was a lot of, I don't want to say fun, but yeah, I'll say fun. Okay. Well, you want to know, here is my, I get to cop out here and give you my favorite part about this particular book. This is the least dense Alan Moore work that I have to read this month. (laughs) Okay, because Watchmen was dense. From Hell is like, I mean, it's like a, a a black hole star of some sort because it's that freaking dense, it feels like. This is what I think rivals it. And there's not so many words on the page, but there's a lot of great Easter eggs within this book. If you go through and look at each page, I guarantee you there's some web page out there that could list them for you because I know I saw that article in Wizard way back in 2000, 2001, but it had some of the, it had some of the coolest little references. Like if you, a panel, you know, panel three, page nine, uh, you go in there and you would find like some reference to another literary work uh, that you hadn't, that had nothing to do with the plot, but it's in there again, because it's that neat universe that it pulls together. Um, And of course, Hey, uh, who can't, you know, who cannot love the concept of uh, our our favorite characters from books actually coming together and doing a crossover? You know, Wolfman meets Frankenstein. Those guys were on the those guys were on the silver screen and putting them together. You know, somebody's going to pick sides. Who's going to win? You know, well, heck, now you've got these guys coming from the books onto the page and and becoming a team. Uh, I think it's it's a tremendous concept. Uh, I love I love this particular book. It's not one, it's not my favorite Alan Moore book, but it's up there. So there we go. That is the book League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now I'm going to pass it over to an extraordinary gentleman himself, and we're going to talk about this. Oh, boy, we're going to talk about the movie 2003. Mark, take it away. All right. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in name only. Um, <laughs> we have a 2003 release here, a movie a movie that some would say is so bad it caused the end of Sean Connery's career. Um, yeah, Sean yeah, Connery said that. that. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, Con- you mean Sean Connery said, no more for me, because I'm driving. Um but uh, we have a film here that came out in 2003. It was directed by Stephen Norrington, who was apparently not very comfortable doing a big studio film and caused a lot of problems. This is the film that eventually drove Alan Moore out of Hollywood. He, too, said, fuck this, I'm going home. Um, he'd had enough. He says uh, that a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I imagine that uh, the part of Alan Moore in any production meeting can simply be played by Eric Cartman. Screw you guys, I'm going home. 
Uh, it stars also uh, Nasa Rudin Shah, Tita Wilson, not the governor, but the gal, um, Tony Curran, Stuart Townsend, Shane West, Jason Fleming, and Richard Roxburgh. Um, it takes a lot of the elements from the book and then sort of recreates it, the, the whole idea of they are assembled to, to help the British Empire do a thing. As it turns out, the guy who sends them on the mission turns out to be the bad guy uh, is sort of, is taken directly from the book, but it's changed in a lot of ways and embellished. It's still, M is still Moriarty, and but his whole idea is now, now instead of, and I actually like this idea, actually, now instead of building um, one warship to bomb London, He's building future um, future weapons to sell to the highest bidder, uh, and he's trying to instigate world war so that he can be a war profiteer. Um, he also the whole reason why he wanted these people assembled in the first place was so that he could steal like their DNA, so he create um, uh, versions of them, you know, vampire soldiers and hide soldiers, and you know, you know and uh, invisible soldiers. Uh, he, I don't know why he needs a quartermain for any of this, but um, <laughs> they actually do explain that. Yeah, there's something around it, but I, I, but it, he doesn't. He didn't fit into that part of it. Um, and of course, the the studio decided that nobody in America would know who any of these people were because Americans don't read. Uh, so uh, they decided to throw in Tom Sawyer because they figured, well, Americans certainly have heard of him. He is an American literature. And he plays a U.S. Uh, Secret Service agent. Um, it's, it's, basically, it's the same sort of uh, plot, um, only instead of Mina being the one to assemble the Avengers, uh, they send someone out, someone else out to uh, there. And uh, instead of being addicted to opium, he's in retirement in Kenya. Africa will not let him die, you see. Um, so there, some British dude is sent to go get Quartermain, um, who says no at first, but then after Moriarty attempts to uh, send a bunch of assassins to kill him, um, he ends up with saying, machine well, guns. You know, this, this this appears to be a problem. Uh, they blew up my house and tried to kill me. So I probably should join you. Um, they he is united with. Uh, Captain Nemo and Captain Nemo's Nautilus and Captain Nemo's automobile and Captain Nemo's machine gun and Captain Nemo's goes on and on. Um, he, 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 he forgot know, his martial arts. Martial arts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, another character. See, the, another character. And, and the way they do this, instead of sort of having a, a, a an Avengers like, you know, let's go to place to place to find these people and bring them together, or how Justice League is going to be, as Batman goes from place to place, you know, finding all these. Big, that up to you. Essentially, they go one place, get Quartermain, bring him to London, and then everyone walks into a room. Um, the only two people they go after after that, um, so the people that walk into the room are Mina Murray, who is Mina Harker, and this and this one instead of being a formerly bitten vampire who has uh, re- regained her humanity, she's still a vampire, so they can give her something to do uh, right. and be invisible. Rodney Skinner, um, who does a fucking terrible, terrible makeup job. And I don't know if it's just, it's terrible now because back, you know, because we have HDTVs and somebody mentioned the same thing about, about the Blade movie where the special effects don't hold up anymore. 
but that might just because of the tech. Because our technology for viewing the movie has changed so much that it looks terrible. No, they were but, terrible back then, too. Sure, of course. Um, so they, uh, they go to recruit, uh, to recruit Dorian Gray, who was another literary uh, character. Um, and then they get Dr. Jekyll. And they're off and running. Um, can I, can I ask a question real quick? Part. Sure. I, I, just, I know I'm interrupting you, but give me a second. Uh, Dorian Gray, does he show up in the any of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen volumes? Uh, I, either of you guys, any of you guys know? No. Okay. His portrait is actually featured in a couple of different panels. I think it's hung, hanged, excuse me. No, no, hung. You, portraits are hung in the past tense. People are hanged. I get it backwards <laughs> from time to time. For that well, time this guy is no, his portrait is, I believe, featured in uh, MI6's headquarters, but he as a character does not appear in any of the novels to this point. Okay, how about Tom Sawyer? Uh, not and a honestly, they and uh, yeah, he's not in this either. And honestly, they added um, this character just so they could have another turncoat in in the group. He. he Simply Dorian Gray acts as a plot point and yet something else for uh, Mina Harker to do. You know, it's like he doesn't hey, really serve any of them. Um, any case, uh, the first part of the movie deals with them trying to stop a plot to blow up uh, Venice, which they arrive in, they arrive just past the Tadah Nick of Time. Uh, though they do, though, so some of Venice gets blown up and not all of it, they are able to stop it. But that's when they find out they've been had. Um, at which point, uh, things, they are at their lowest point. Nautilus is bombed. They've got all kinds of problems. Uh, they fix them. They gather their shit together. They have their, you know, they, they have their Avengers moment where, where uh, Nick Fury walks into the room and says, you know, do it for Phil. Here's his card filled with blood. Um, <laughs> they, pick them, they pick themselves up and they go to uh, northern Mongolia where... Um, well, by this point, Skinner has actually um, gotten on the uh, the ship with Dorian Gray and led them to this hideout. So they get there, they reunite with Skinner. Uh, they essentially they assault the Avengers assault on on this hideout where all the weaponry is. Everyone breaks off and has a mission. Nemo and Hyde save uh, the German scientists and their families. Um, uh, Mina goes after Dorian Gray and they have themselves a nice little fight and Quartermain and Tom Sawyer go after Moriarty. Um, and the, at the end of the day, uh, there's a subplot where like Quartermain's son has died. He kind of adopts Sawyer as his son, teaches him how to shoot long distance, which he does at the very end of the movie. Meanwhile, uh, Quartermain has been um, has been uh, mortally wounded and dies. It, it ends uh, like a Star Wars movie. There's a funeral, <laughs> uh, or even better, it ends like Batman. V, it ends like Batman v Superman. They, you know, it, they everyone gathers for this funeral. Uh, Tom Sawyer says, "I failed him in life. I won't fail him in death." And um, and, and a Kenyan witch doctor shows up. Uh, and uh, brings a storm, and lightning hits it, and Jason pops out. No, um, I was waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> so let me let me first say that this movie did not do well. Um, it 
I mean, it, on a seventy-eight million dollar budget, much of which was given to John Connery, um, it made well, hundred. I believe he paid, he was paid either twelve or seventeen million dollars for this role. I forget which number. Probably nineteen million. Okay. Um, nope, sorry, seventeen. You're right, seventeen million for his role, which left like you know chump change. And this is why like there's like nobody really recognizable in the rest of this movie. This is Sean Connery and a bunch of extras. Um, so. Uh, it made 179.3 million, eh, you know, and and it's been pretty much panned by by critics far and wide. When I first saw it, much like with the Watchmen, I had an expectation of what I thought I was going to see, and then I was like, nope, this sucks, and I'm not interested. Watching it again the other day in preparation for this podcast, don't say and it. Having no expectation. <laughs> Can I have an opinion? Thanks. <laughs> Is that okay with you? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think I have a second wife here. You're not allowed to have an opinion. It's not, you know, <laughs> don't watch say me. it. <laughs> I watched the movie, and, you know, in terms of a, a proud, pleasing Hollywood action film, it's okay. I mean, it's typical. Um, yeah, I'm not sure there's I'm the not migraine sure. I've been missing for the last three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> There's the, you wonder why we do a podcast together, right, folks? I don't know if the steampunk slash diesel punk action adventure motif really works, but I mean, you know, I was able to follow the plot. the the act The acting is fine; it's passable. Um, you know, I could follow uh, the story. I, I was interested in how the story was going to be uh, resolved, and I don't know. I um, I'm without Robert Winfrey screaming into the ether. My God, this is terrible. That's why it failed. Beyond that, <laughs> beyond all of that, I'm not entirely sure why this didn't connect with audiences. I think part of it was definitely well. Can we can we start point. with that? It's terrible. Can that at least be no. the first point brought up along why it failed? Nope. Um, I want to start with this point. It, it, it was number two in the weekend that it came out. Number one was Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black, uh, uh, Black Pearl. And I, and I wonder, to a degree, to a small degree, much like Suicide Squad, if, you know, maybe critically it might have been a failure, but if more people would have gone to see it in the third and fourth week, had Pirates of the Caribbean pretty much not eaten up the entire month that that movie came out. That thing, I mean, I'll go, I'll go and look at the numbers real quick. But Pirates of the Caribbean was a beast, and you know, oh, it that just, thing did like it, a billion it, it, dollars or close yeah. to it worldwide. Yeah. Monster, monster it, film. It, it, right, it crushed everything in its path, and so you wonder, like, with a movie like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, does it do better? You know, when it doesn't have something like that to compete against. Is, is that part of the reason it didn't do as well? Or is it just, no, even next to a monster like Pirates, because the film is so shoddy, it still wouldn't have done well. It, this is the ball that I'd like to kick around and, you know, before Robert Winfrey had, uh, completely pulls the rest of his hair out. Um, I mean, that's really all I have to say for now about it. I want to open up the discussion. Um and I'm going to leave Robert for last because I because Robert has a ranch in him. Robert, it's Robert, boiling. It's boiling. Robert has a ranch in him about what's so bad about this movie. And I'm pretty sure the phrase that things don't work that way is going to be somewhere in there. 
So you're not as go much last. as you might think. No, it deserves <laughs> to be though. But I want to know, like, from Ronnie, why do you, why didn't it click with you, and why don't you think it clicked with the greater American audience when basically it was your average American action film with some fun liter- literary characters? I have to say that you could have re-released Ishtar, and it still wouldn't have done good. <laughs> I mean, this, here's why I think it didn't uh, click with audiences, because um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a very um, niche book. It is a cult, cult following. Uh, not not your, your everyday average person that goes to see you know, action movies and stuff like that are not going to know much about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So that being said, they're going to leave. They're going to say, okay, well, let's see what it's all about. We're not going to go see that opening weekend. We'll go see the pirate movie. That, that'll that be a lot more fun. So after that, they hear that it's not good from everybody that went to see it, or they hear it's not good from uh, pan, uh, from from critics panning it. And then people are just not going to go. Um, the reason it didn't click with me is because, huh? Yeah, okay. That's, sorry, I, I was trying to get you there. What didn't you like about it? Yeah, what I, what I didn't like about it, it is so far off from the source material that is not funny. Um, I, that's that's nitpicky at, at, at sometimes at best, but this is so far off. They added characters. They. Uh, main characters they it, it just i don't know it was just too hokey it was too um too funny too it was tr- it, it almost like it was trying too hard to to be a superhero movie when that's not really what the whole point of the book is it's not a superhero movie it's not a superhero book um but it was trying too hard to be a superhero movie in my opinion I just didn't. I, I just didn't get. You know, I just didn't get it. I guess uh, um, as far as um, uh, an overall movie. I mean, yes, like you said, the acting was passable. The the um, the storyline flowed pretty well and everything. But it, I just don't think it was much um, much of a storyline. Uh, I think um, passable acting is not strong enough to save this for me. Um, it would have to be some pretty darn good, you know, Citizen Kane type, you know, performances <laughs> for me to get behind it. Um, it, it. Connery was dialing it in. I mean, he hated the director, and the director pretty much hated him. And, you, you, and it showed in his performance that he just didn't give a crap about it. Um, it just overall, it was just a just a burning hot, you know, just a tire fire of a movie. Um, that just didn't make any sense to me. Like, why did they have to add Tom Sawyer? I get why they added him. You know, you, you're right. You know, American audiences need an American hero to cheer on because most of them, you know, don't realize who these literary characters are because they are, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, British literary characters. Um, Dorian Gray was just thrown in as, you know, as the as the villain because they couldn't get the rights for... Um, for the Invisible Man, so they had an Invisible Man, um, whom they made into a hero in the end. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it was just all these components, all these things that were wrong with it, just there were too many to to salvage anything good out of it. Can, I don't know. I, I think, I, 
let me let me throw this out there and you guys can respond to it and then I want to hear from Jesse. Uh I didn't read the book first. I saw the movie first. I saw the movie twice before I read the book. And like I said, the first time I had an I had an expectation of I thought this was a superhero movie and that's why I didn't watch it, because it was just a, it seemed to me like a bunch of old people running around. But um I was young then. Uh so it was it was thirteen years ago. I was practically uh but um I to watch it now, I was like, okay, I get it. I, I get what's happening here. This is kind of fun. I would like to see more of the sort of thing. Maybe done a little bit better. Maybe some scenes could have been directed a little bit better. Some of the action gets a bit muddled uh, hither and thither. I would have made a couple of changes. But, um, and having now read the comic book, there's elements of it that I would, that I would have preferred they kept. Um, just from an aesthetic point of view, I like the Nautilus. I like the look of the Nautilus in the comic book versus what it looks like in the movie. But I always go back to the same thing I say on Long Road to Ruin. Source material to me doesn't matter. What matters is story. What matters mm-hmm. is craft. What matters is, is performance. And everything was kind of average. So I don't get the hate for it. If you don't, if you have no regard for the source material. By the by, uh, Alan Moore also Alan Moore also says that the reason why everyone is because of something like the comics, which you know, which I just sort of throw my hands up and say. Why does it have to be? Well, um, yeah, I mean, 80% of the people that probably watched this movie have never read the book. That's, right. That's, that's probably... I mean, I'm... Oh, uh, sorry. No, go ahead, Ronnie. I was, I was going to say, I'm not a stickler for, sor- for sticking, you know, right by the source material. Otherwise, I would have completely hated 99.9% of all superhero movies that they've released. You know, because you look at the Avengers, they mixed up um, the six one six and the Ultimate uh, Universe. They, you know, they they've they've done a lot of things in there. You know, um, Henry Pym and Janet Van Dyne weren't on the original Avengers team. At that point, I should have said, you know what, I'm done with this. You know, screw you guys, I'm going home. Um, but you know, I'm I'm all about making you know changing it up. Um, to to fit this to fit the cinema to fit the the screen and everything I'm I'm okay with that but when you write a completely different story and add characters that have no business being in there um, that's when I that's when I kind of raise my eyebrow and say this better be good uh, although and, and it wasn't it just it was not a good movie to me I mean um, it just I don't want to say it was boring or anything like that had it you know had it been any other um, team, maybe I would have been okay with it, but I, I highly doubt it. Let me go ahead and I'll step in here, Mark. We got <clears throat> we got a bunch of characters thrown together on a screen, and I have no investment in nobody other than probably Sean Connery's character. Now, yeah. granted, he's the main character, but I don't have – what made the book more interesting to me than the movie – was the fact that I each character had this this backstory and this bit of mystery behind them? You know, these these adventures had stopped for such a long time, uh, and now all these guys are getting together and past their prime. What's gone on in behind it? Now the book doesn't go into all that, but it has that air of mystery behind that. Now in in this particular movie, all these characters are just kind of thrown together, and I. I wasn't intrigued by, uh, you know, not one person, honestly. Uh, and that might be because I just read the book. Now, 
that that tends to you know skew who somebody I would love to see somebody who watched this prior to reading, which was you, Mark. You said you watched this prior to reading. Um, I mean, when you first saw the trailer, you said it just looked like another superhero movie. I, I honestly think that's kind of what this is. That's it's just another superhero movie with less in, uh, less interest on my part. I, 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 what's that? Nobody with any superpowers. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, other than other than Hyde, I don't know. We got Hyde, Invisible Man. That's a pretty cool power. But I, I don't want to step on Winfrey's toes because he is the guy that I love to hear go off about CGI. But I'm honestly going to tell you this. the One of the most off-putting parts about this movie was the way Hyde looked. And it wasn't because he looked fake. They made him look absolutely horrid and disgusting. And that's <laughs> probably the point. But I could not – I could – I almost – looking at him, he was just – his arms were so disproportionate from his head. That's probably the point. But that really turned me off. And I, I just watched this movie four hours ago. Okay? It's not like I'm reaching back trying to remember this shit. This was four hours ago in my life. I got up from the movie – I should have paused it because when I came back and sat down like maybe five minutes later, I honestly was kind of lost. I was like, what the hell is going on? Wait, you guys do You guys run this little bit where the FBI is turning on the CIA and whatever, NSA and all that. That was kind of where I was at. I was like, what? who is this guy? And that guy's the, the opera singer guy. He's the Phantom. And then, oh, no, wait a second. That's Moriarty. And uh, I was... I, I I just couldn't keep track of it, and the superhero exploits of these guys. Uh, I mean, I've seen better, and we're thirteen out, thirteen years out from this from this movie being released. Was it groundbreaking at the time in two thousand three? Obviously, if it would have been, we, there would have been a lot more fans. I don't have, I don't harbor the hate that some people have for this movie. I've heard it. I've, you know, I've heard many people say that they they can't stand it, and I, I don't, I don't get that from it. But I don't think it's a tremendously good movie. Robert Winfrey. No, no hang on. Don't get me wrong. A couple of things, and then I want, then I want to give Robert Winfrey all the time he wants. Sure. But I'm not saying this thing is, you know, I'm Deadpool. You know, I'm not saying this is a first Avengers movie. I'm only yeah. using that one because everyone else in the fucking world loves it and I have issues with it. Well, that's but a good comparison. It's, it's not the world's greatest movie. I am not in any way saying that. I, I, but I don't get where all the hatred's coming from because outside of the fact that the CGI is dated and terrible and some of, and some of the costuming, you know, the way Hyde looks and all of that, you're right, it's, it's kind of terrible. Um, other than that, I thought it was a passable action flick. I mean, if, it, if, if, if it's one of those things where if it comes on cable, I would probably watch it. But other than that, it wouldn't really enter into my atmosphere. But you're right. It's got this legacy of hate behind it where if you draw out the portion of people who only hate it because it's not enough like the source material, what is left to hate about this movie? It's, like, it's kind of like Ghostbusters to me, 2016. It's just there. There's no reason for it to generate this much emotion. But maybe I'm missing something. Were you? So were you? To... Hold on. Were you interested? I mean, were you like really involved in a character in this particular? 
uh, in this particular movie? Was there an investment that you had other than maybe Sean Connery? I mean, they threw his stuff in there about a son, but I certainly wasn't like, you know, I, 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 the whole dad aspect and all that. Go ahead, man. No, I, I was more interested in the plot. The characters okay. are flat, and I'm sure Winfrey's going to tell us that. The characters are kind of flat. Um, and no one's really developed at all. They're all they're, they're all just like I'm the invisible guy. I do invisible stuff. Oh, I'm you know oh, I'm the hide guy. I do hide stuff. Mm-hmm. You know um, I'm the creepy vampire gal. I do creepy <laughs> vampire stuff. Watch me. Dance. <laughs> um, so so that's that, that that's certainly a criticism. But I was interested in the story. I wanted to see how it got resolved, and I enjoyed watching these characters of heroes do hero stuff. That was fun for me. Um, that's what I said. This was this is this is sweet candy. It's just it's just there, you know, to enjoy, you know, to to pass two hours with some mind numbing fun. And now here to tell me that I'm wrong, Robert Winfrey. Robert Winfrey, <laughs> bring me a uh, Okay. Where do I want to start with this? You guys have touched on the effects, both practical and digital, that just aren't very good. Uh, the direction for this movie is very poor. Uh, the action tends to get muddled. There's a lot of poor editing choices that go into a lot of the cut. Uh, I mean, like anytime Nemo engages in physical combat, there's a cut every time he moves or rotates roughly 30 degrees. And it's extraordinarily off-putting. The story is very poor. Uh, very poor. <laughs> Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that this movie is so bad, and Mark, uh, I, I've heard Mark's perspective on the first Avengers movie. Not the Avengers starring Sean Connery and Ray Fiennes, but Marvel's The Avengers. Ugh. Just to bring up another terrible movie featuring <laughs> Sean Connery. I thought, I, you know, I'd forgotten that existed until you said something. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman. Yeah. <laughs> mm. The reason the Avengers works is because we and the Avengers is a very poorly written movie. Uh, Mark's talked about that at length. I tend to agree with him, generally speaking. The reason it functions at all successfully is because we know all the characters already. We've been previously introduced to them. We've seen them go through at least one movie, so one major character arc. So we know who they all are, and we have investments in them to varying degrees by the time we spend two hours chasing down Tom Hiddleston. All of that is devoid from this movie. This movie is so poorly written that if you were to replace the names of these characters with original characters instead of li- ones from classic literature, no one would remember any of them. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that, that's just such a massive failing. The, a big part of the reason the final fight in the first volume works is by the time we actually get to the action you care whether or not these people live or die. You have a sense of the scope that's going on. You want them to succeed or fail. You want so-and-so to live or so-and-so to die. And Because without that emotional investment, there's no point. It's just stuff blowing up, and that's what I hate about Michael Bay's movies. And this, in many ways, might as well have been a Michael Bay movie. The plot's stupid. The action is poorly cut together, poorly edited. The CGI is awful. And the plot makes very little sense. I mean, this might as well have been Transformers. 
if you swap out Tom Sawyer with Shia LaBeouf. (laughs) (laughs) He would have made a better Tom Sawyer. (laughs) I I can't fundamentally agree with that just because it implies Shia LaBeouf serves a purpose. Uh, I actually don't mind Tom Sawyer in this movie. Uh, partially, and again, partially it's there because American audiences are stupid. And, okay, fair enough. I mean, the data doesn't exactly disprove that hypothesis at this particular point in time. But you also, with him, get an injection of kind of youth and energy into the whole proceedings that... I think even in the source material would not have gone necessarily amiss. I mean, it's fine without it, but its inclusion would not have been necessarily a bad one, all things considered. A big failing of this movie is, and this is going to sound really weird, it is entirely too stupid to be as intelligent as it tries to be, but at the same time is just smart enough to alienate the people who just want stupid stuff. And in falling into this nebulous middle ground where, oh, wait, I understand that, oh, you're making a joke about Hyde being responsible for the murders in the Rue Morgue because they were committed by a orang- – because in Edgar Allan Poe's story, they were committed by a loose orangutan, and Hyde is described frequently as ape-like in the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, that's, that's moderately amusing. Too bad you don't either go into it for the sake of the audience or give me – for the sake of the stupid people, you don't give them anything to do with it, and for the sake of those of us who actually get the joke, there's nothing else to it other than, you know, this is like a movie comprised of Easter eggs that lead yeah. to nothing. <laughs> it's uh, it's a poorly put-together movie. The acting is passable, but th- there's I, I can't say anything really good about any aspect of this movie from start to finish. No, no, I'm yelling at my <laughs> No, this is a ter- this is just not a good movie. I, I I can't defend it or praise it on virtually any level. Man, you know, I, Hyde when he was changing was probably one of the worst things I'd ever seen. Like they had to, there was an explosion and then he got a little bit smaller and then another explosion and then he got a little bit smaller. I'm like we got a cut in order to kind of do this. This is the kind of uh, money that we're spending here. Um, it just was, that was probably one of the, it was tough to get through watching some of that stuff. Now, some of the action I was down with, you know, one of the things I remember typing out was I just wanted to see Hyde wreck shit, just like he did in the comic. And I was itching for that time. And you almost don't get that. There's a, Little bit of it, but not a whole lot. No. And the, the, close, the closest you get is him fighting uh, the Super Shredder at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go with Hulk versus Red Hulk. Yeah. Thank you very much. My reference yeah. is. Or yeah. we're going with the cinematic version Hulk versus the Abomination. And he seemed, and Hyde seemed My more version tame. Still better. Because I reference seemed... Kevin Nash. You can't beat me. <laughs> he wins. Um, but he seemed more tame in the in, in the adaptation too. I mean, it just he Hyde was kind of a jerk there at the beginning, and then all of a sudden he's just like he's laid back. Uh, he, you know, he's he's helping out, and he just doesn't have that uh, bit of you know that mean streak in him. But 
Yeah. Enough. I've had my say. I'm sorry. I jumped in there. I just, I'm just noticing as Robert was talking, I'm suddenly realizing like why we have the disagreements that we do and where we're fundamentally coming from as, as different people. And, and you, you kind of said it with, you know, smart people, dumb people. Like I'm a smart guy. Admittedly, you know, I, I, I fun around with being kind of silly, but I'm a fairly intelligent human being. And I got a lot of, and I got a lot of what was said in the movie, but I like a lot of dumb stuff. I really do. Like I, I I enjoy a lot of really stupid shit, <laughs> and I, and I think that's what, that's that's sort of the conflict that Robert and I have. It's just like why is like a smart guy enjoy you know praising or finding the good in such dumb dumb yeah un- indefensible stuff? Well, that that's me to a T. I am the defender of the indefensible. Mark I'm as dumb as a box of rocks, movie. and I hated this movie. <laughs> the last okay. word on this movie should probably actually come from the late Roger Ebert, who I believe his uh, his uh, the quote that they used from his review is generally, I believe, accurate. Let me find it. And for some reason, I lost my link to it. Hang on. <laughs> this is awesome so, radio. <laughs> uh, yeah, here it is. I found it. I found it. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen assembles a splendid team of heroes to battle a plan for world domination, and then, just when it seems about to become a real corker of an adventure movie, plunges into inexplicable motivations, causes without effects, effects without causes, and general lunacy. Okay, I have a problem with the with some of that. I read that same one, um, and it was actually in the Wikipedia page. The guy wanted to profit from a world at war. And he wanted the DNA of some of the superpowered individuals on Earth so that he could create more ver- cloned versions of them. I don't understand what's so hard to. I don't understand like why that's hard to understand or why that's that's an odd motivation. That isn't. Yeah. But okay. the fact that we then dovetail into Dorian Gray, into Hyde, who is inexplicably not at odds with Jekyll all of the time into Nemo, who is not actually a character so much as the giant eagles who could take them to Mordor. <laughs> I, wanna, <laughs> I, I do, I do want to ask a logical Those question. Those freaking eagles. I want to ask a, a logical question here, and maybe it's something I, I missed that's in dangerous. the movie. Just be aware, I, that, that's a dangerous <laughs> premise around here. <laughs> okay, this dude was putting all this, like, all, he was building his tanks, was it in Antarctica? Or where was it? No, no they Northern were in Outer Mongolia. Okay, all right. So let me just say this. They should be very grateful they didn't set this in Antarctica because I would have lost my mind at the ineptitude (laughs) associated with that. Well, I was sitting here thinking, I'm like, he's building all these tanks. And I, you know, I saw the, I saw the frozen earth. I'm like, well, they're, they must be like in Antarctica or something. I was like, is he going to straight up just drive these things across the ocean or what exactly is he going to do? He's building tons and tons of these things. Uh, and I was like, it's going to cost a lot of fuel to get that to where it needs to go. I think it still would, even Outer Mongolia. Well, at least Outer Mongolia is – I mean, Eurasia itself is one continent. We divide it up for, more for political purposes than necessarily for the geographical sense thereof. Uh, India is actually more of its own tectonic plate than is necessarily Europe from Asia. So he would ha- it would be – I mean it's still not going to be cheap, but Mongolia it's, it's has more easy. than enough space. It lacks the infrastructure necessary to support this kind of auto- – the kind of automated production that enables war on the 
on the industrial scale. Uh, the reason I think I would have thrown a fit if they had sent this in Antarctica, even you know, 2003 me, who chuckled every now and then at the occasional literary reference, one of the spin-off, one of the standalone kind of spin-offs from the League, from the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, deals specifically with Captain Nemo's daughter. And the first story, the, uh, the first story in her arc, involves her retracing her father's journey to Antarctica. Oh. Now, here's why I would have lost my mind. Guys, to anyone out there listening, this is my Grandpa Simpson advice to you, okay? Grandpa Simpson on Homer's wedding day told him, gave him the best advice possible. If you ever find yourself traveling back through time, don't step on anything because you can change the future in ways you can't possibly imagine. Great advice. Here's mine in the same vein. If you ever, for whatever reason, find yourself in a alternate timeline, alternate dimension, slightly shifted reality, if you have any legitimate reason to believe that the plane of existence you are on is not this one that you're on right now, <laughs> I do not care what the world looks like. War-torn dystopia, utopia... Governments run amok. Back to nature. I don't care. Stay away from Antarctica. <laughs> because, because, because Shoguths live in Antarctica. And I know Sh- none of you get the reference because I'm the only Lovecraftian here. <laughs> but there, there's a very famous one of Lovecraft's more well-received stories called At the Mountains of Madness, which deals with an expedition to the Antarctic that actually stumbles across a, a shogath uh, in, the, sub, in the, uh, the caves down there. You cannot observe shoguths. Looking at them drives you mad. They are giant, almost amoeba-like creatures with tentacles, and they're only semi-solid. They roll over and obliterate things, and you're, the human mind trying to comprehend their shape, their form, their ability, just, it, it makes no logical sense. And the only possible way for your mind to shield itself from the, the horrible reality of these spawn of the elder gods is insanity. And Nemo actually encountered a Shogath when he went through Antarctica. She encounters one there uh, on her journey. And had they set this thing in Antarctica and not given me some kind of eldritch horror, I would have thrown something. So, but in, in any way, if you ever are worried about being in any reality other than this one, just stay away from Antarctica. I don't care if it's a utopian future and, our, and that particular continent has actually been settled and colonized. You will be the one dumbass who actually breaches the chamber where they're all sleeping soundly under the earth and is responsible for the end of that civilization. Just stay away from there. No good will come of it. Very good advice. I'm just going to let you guys... What's going to happen here is we're going to post the link to the show, and attached to that link will be nothing but photo comments of many things that we've talked about tonight. Not actual words... But photo comments, because I just looked up Shogoth, and boy, that's going to be a fun one to post. I can't wait. <laughs> um, 
They're, they're, they're right. horrible creatures. And again, being a fan of they Lovecraft, look- being a fan of Lovecraft, you just you stay away from Antarctica. There's whole places in the South Pacific uh, where Rilia is supposed to be, and you, you you just you know better. You just stay if away I, from. If I- if I made a if I if I made a uh, and just a statement here and say that they look an awful look a lot like uh, what I saw in the Matrix Reloaded, uh, would you feel the necess- the necessity to find me and hit me? Uh, only in the sense that I believe that's not the best representation. Uh, for anyone out there who's played uh, Call of Cthulhu: Dark Corners of the Earth, uh, there's a showgirl that is actually a protracted boss fight. Uh, under the in the sewers of Innsmouth, that is, I believe, a much truer representation to it in both size, morphing ability. There's also one apparently in the uh, game Bloodborne that is chained and hung over the abyss. Some scary right. stuff you think about, Robert Winfrey. We gotta wrap. We gotta wrap this up. We have like 15 minutes left before we go over, and I don't want to go over. So here's the thing. I'm gonna. I want to throw this one last little bit out there. And I'm the movie guy, and this is what we talk about, um, Robert, when we do our movie reviews. Uh, this was supposed to spawn a franchise for Fox. It bombed. It didn't. However, um, we are, uh, if you watch the latest episode of South Park, uh, they did a thing about member berries, which is remember, remember this, remember that. Well, we're remembering the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And Fox hasn't forgotten it either. Variety, as well as a number of other publications, have said, they are aiming to reboot this franchise. They've already got a team on board. At this point, they're looking for a director uh, and a writer, I believe. When you say team uh, in this particular instance, you mean you have some poor schmuck who needs a paycheck who's writing the treatment and a production and a couple of guys who work for a production company who have nothing better to do with their time. So we've got some producers out there <laughs> who are looking to reboot the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen but because... This is the world we live in. They are trying to do, much like they did with Ghostbusters, only hopefully they won't fuck it up the way Sony did. Uh, They want to do a female-centric League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is kind of... Mm. How do you... It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Mina, look, Mina's a strong enough female character that when actually handled appropriately... By either a writer or director team that is not, you know, dealing with their heads having to be removed from their own asses at the time of production and filming, she fills that role. This is not a franchise in any of its iterations that is starved for female characters. Again, uh, Nemo's daughter takes his place after the third, after the second volume because he sees what happens during that particular episode which mirrors War of the H.G. Wells' War of the World story, throws up his hands and says, I'm out. You all are terrible people. I'm done with you. So help me if I ever see you again. This will end badly for everyone. And his daughter winds up kind of filling his role in the subsequent storylines. There's no need to pander with this. And more importantly, what are you going to do? Jane Eyre and the chick from Pride and Prejudice? I mean, how, what are we dealing with? The pool, I mean, the character pool here is pretty weak. Well, get ready, folks, because it's coming. League of Extraordinary no, Gentlemen with most... Gambit has a better yeah. chance of being made in this movie. <laughs> Sorry, Melissa. Can I get through my joke, please? Jesus. 
McMahon knew when to shut up. You know what I mean? Um, you ain't Johnny Carson. So <laughs> you're nowhere you near that. League of take three. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with a female centric cast starring Melissa McCarthy coming to a theater near you in oh, 2020. Oh, jeez, dude. Okay, she showed up at the end closer to him than I do. <laughs> she showed up at the end of Central Intelligence, and I just groaned. I'm not done yet. Directed by Paul Fee. That's why. not going to happen. Look, Mark, that, look, I, I, your jokes about Melissa McCarthy, fine. There's a ch- I groan because there's a chance you might be right, and I hate the world we live in because of it. Paul <laughs> Feig is never going to direct this movie. Let's, that, that's not accurate under any, wish, uh, under any set of circumstances. Someone from Fox is going to call him and say, we know what happened with Sony. We're not a terrible company like they are. We yes, yes they are. Now, I'm tell- this, is a, this is what a Fox representative is going to say. We're a better company. We make money. We're not like Sony. We're not terrible. We're not going to instigate a fight with Internet trolls. And, and Paul, just to sweeten the deal for you and get ready for this, guys, because it's going to happen. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen starring Melissa McCarthy with mostly a female cast and a big dance number. Paul Fee signs on the dotted line. I guarantee it. They get, he gets a dance number. And I guarantee you, he's a, he, he's in for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2020. I guarantee Paul you, there'll Feig be is fires. Out of that movie when they say, Paul Feig is out of that movie when they say you can't engage the internet trolls because that's all he's good for. <laughs> all right, Jesse. I, me and Robert can go at this for another hour. God knows we have. I, so, I've heard it. <laughs> so, like KMFDM once said, "Help me, save me, take me away." <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank everybody who's had the opportunity to listen tonight, listening live, listening later on down the road, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you find this great podcast on the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network. First off, I want to thank my guests, Robert Winfrey of the 411 Ground and Pound, the movie podcast. What do you, what do you guys call it? The Summer Blockbuster? What is it called? Tell me out. At the moment, it's just the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network movie review podcast, although we seriously need a better name for it than that. <laughs> well, we don't, well, here's the deal. I don't come up with a better name for it than that because whenever we post a podcast, we just post, you know, the, the movie review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, that's why I don't care if it has a good name or not. Like, that's not the name of the podcast. The name of the podcast is whatever it is we're reviewing. Well, uh, yeah, that's not going to cause us plenty of legal difficulties further down the line. <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie Adams of the Screaming Boy Podcast, thank you for being here, sir. I do appreciate <laughs> oh, it. I do appreciate I it. You contributed. Contribute. You contributed. My friend, you <laughs> no. had that... You had that fun little Android song we heard earlier in the podcast. I, I enjoyed it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and bring the ambient noise, Ronnie. <laughs> I, I had a blast. I, I've decided that I'm going to set this phone up and use it for target practice as soon as I get my phone back. Sounds like a plan. So, hey, Mark, talk- Mark, you like freak show fights, right? Yeah. Chael Sonnen just signed with Bellator. Yeah, I've been dying to post that in one of our chats, I, but I wanted to actually focus on the discussion. But yes, I saw that. Jail Sonin is uh, going to Bellator. Hot dog. With all of his steroids. <laughs> you guys in your MMAs, crazy kids in your MMAs, 
Unbelievable. Um, uh, incidentally, a quick plug. This Saturday, I will be covering UFC Fight Night 94 in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. The main event is Dustin Poirier and Michael Johnson. Uh, so if you're interested in the sport, stop by, say hello, follow along. I appreciate it. Anything else you'd like to talk <laughs> They're all counting on you. Anything else you'd like to plug there, Robert Winfrey? Oh, I got those. I got that out of the way. The every Sunday before one one ground and pound radio show. Uh, not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday, Mark and I will be reviewing the Magnificent Seven remake, which I am leery of. Uh, we really should have put something on for like the last couple of weeks because a couple of half decent movies have come out. You guys are re- re- reviewing the prequel, the prequel, right? The Ridiculous Six. <laughs> <laughs> Robert done. Winfrey is not amused. <laughs> no, no, I am most certainly not amused by a reminder of Adam Sandler's continued existence. Well, first of all, sir, need I remind you that that's not how the podcast works. We are a blockbuster podcast. We are not a, you know, other than maybe the occasional one that I'm really, really interested in, we are not a <clears throat> podcast. We are not an every week podcast. We only do the big budget uh, blockbusters. All right. Yeah, I still think we could have fit in a couple of the larger releases over the last couple of weeks. I ain't going to see Sully. Only the second worst case of Oscar bait I've seen so far this year. Because <laughs> really, if you guys have not seen a trailer for Snowden... And don't un- and don't just reek of Oscar Chum, the likes of which would draw Jaws and all of his associated kin. <laughs> uh, you, you need to get your olfactory glands checked because that's all that is. Not interesting, Snowden either. No, I'm not. I'm not going to see it. I mean, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but I can't take the preachiness that's going to come out of that pile of crap. Well, I told you, I'm wait. I'm going to wait for the accountant to come on. Um... To come on, oh, that's, uh, that's the uh, one we could have added. I, I just want another I, I just to mock Ben Affleck publicly. That's really all I want. <laughs> I don't I like Ben Affleck. Except that yeah, I want to wait. I know. So do a lot of people. I, I wanna wait. It's okay to be wrong. I want to wait. wait for the accountant to come on on demand. I'd rather watch it at home than go to the movies to watch it. I know. It just limits what I get to talk with you about when it comes to movies. I'm stuck watching crap. And then having to talk oh, about you crap. Robert Winfrey misses me. Robert Winfrey misses me. <laughs> All right. Robert Winfrey misses All good right. movies. Right. <laughs> Which I don't – I only get one of those. Throughout the entire Alan Moore month, there's only one half-decent movie. That's next week. Yes, yes, it anything, is. Anything else, Robert Winfrey? I'll be back next week for V for Fendetta, where we get to discuss – not Moore's best work. I, again, I think that's here in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But certainly a good piece of work that he did and a film adaptation of it that actually doesn't suck as much as this one or divide people <laughs> as much as Watchmen did. And politics. I think it'll be the first time we get the chance to discuss politics on here. Oh, as, as it's going to be, guys, go <laughs> as a brief preview... Alan Moore does a lot of things very well as a writer. Subtlety is not one of them. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> and when we talk uh, about his political views next week, we'll get into that in slightly greater detail. Cannot wait. Um, this is going to be an interesting one for me because the very first time I watched this, I was with my first wife, and I fell the fuck asleep during this movie. Oh, how I slept sweet, slept sweet, sweet. <laughs> That was probably more the company you were keeping at the time, if your stories are accurate. Um, it's possible. Yeah, I, I, I was sitting on the floor watching that movie, and, and I would wake up periodically if I heard a loud noise, basically. Other than that, I was fucking done. I was asleep. I was, you know, was Sandman, take me away. And now, ladies and gentlemen, he's great. Now run. I want to see. Now I'm now because you had to invoke the Sandman. I'm going to spend the rest of the night fa- uh, thinking about what an Alan Moore run on that particular franchise, originally done by Neil Gaiman, would look like. Yeah, that would be interesting. Neil right. Diamond, the singer. Neil Diamond. Gaiman. Yes. He's going to. Wow. Oh. I still think Forever in Blue Jeans is Diamond's best song. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with you too much about that, actually. Next person up is Ronnie Adams. Ronnie Adams, you've got plugs, sir. Please, please plug them. Sorry, (laughs) go on. Silence these guys. Come on. Uh, I am. uh, I host a uh, podcast with Adam Runyon called Screaming Boy Productions, where we have multiple correspondents that come on and and share with us, Jesse and and guys. You are uh, Mark and Robert. You are more than welcome on anytime. we never invited me. Yeah, I, it's he an open invitation, did. brother. <laughs> open invita- you are, you are invited. Oh, okay. I've never, you I've never, the- you've never contacted me and said, "Hey, we're talking about X, Y, Z. Would you like to be on the? We're talking about girls covered in goo, you know, hugging uh, young interns. We we hear you're into that sort of thing. Would you like to come on? I've never gotten that invitation, so I because we've never talked about that, Mark. Oh, I, no! That, but that now that it's been way. put out there, I mean, we you almost have to do it. Talk next about week, that, right? Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we 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 switch switch gears from uh, from movies to just everything that we're uh, currently you know excited about in, in our uh, in our uh, nerdy selves, you know, in our nerd, nerdy world here. So um, we uh, we. Recently, um, oh Lord, what did we recently do? Um, <laughs> we've we've released a lot of content lately, and that, I love it um, because we were we were down for a while. But uh, we just recently talked about Neverending Story. Uh, it's re-release, and and uh, if we still you know if it still holds up to this day, um, we t- uh, Josh Calanders and I we just released uh, our discussion on. Uh, the first three issues of Civil War Two in the Marvel Comics. Uh, the the last issues of that run will be soon, you know, whenever it ends. And, um, and so we also have uh, we just uh, Jesse. What did we just talk about the other night? Um, uh, uh, I'll never do uh, punk. Yeah, we did discuss first ever time I've ever been on a podcast and talked MMA. And Robert yeah. Winfrey, I did not do you proud. Let's just put it that way. Neither did well, CM Punk when it comes to any sort of exactly. athletic endeavor. <laughs> that's what we. That's what I was getting ready to say. We talked about CM Punk's disastrous, disastrous debut in, in uh, the UFC, but I do give him props for for at least trying. Um, I mean, I have me to. Too. Otherwise, I do what. I agree. Me too. 
I, I think it took yeah. a lot of guts to get in there and have no ability but still want to fight. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. And uh, five hundred thousand dollars will buy a lot of guts. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that said, I will let uh, I will jump in the ring or octagon with anyone for five hundred grand and let them pummel me. Uh, and then we followed up with a little bit of talk about the Samsung uh, Note Seven, or as better Explosion. known as the grenade phone. Yeah, the yeah. grenade phone. <laughs> Uh, so we've got, you know, just different things going on right now and, uh, a lot of different content, a lot of different subjects. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, soon we're going to be talking about uh, our favorite, um, our, our favorite, uh, Mark, you may want in on this or, or Robert, uh, our favorite canceled, uh, shows that we can watch over and over there on Netflix, like Lost or, uh, Chuck or, uh, you know, d- just shows that, you know, Serenity. Didn't mention um, Firefly. You're or Firefly. Me. Firefly. <laughs> I meant to, I actually mentioned the movie instead of the show. Um, ah, they're so, good. Uh, yeah, they're amazing. Uh, this it's, I've probably watched that series at least three times, um, or more. Um, we should all just be very grateful. It ended when it did before it got weedened. <laughs> If you've ever followed so, a Joss Whedon the, property past the third season, you know that's where the cliff is. Yeah, that's true. Buffy. But, uh... Hey, so, or don't so, dare we're, so we're going to be talking about uh, our favorite shows that we can watch over and over again, where they jump the shark or if they jump the shark, uh, things like that. And uh, uh, I know coming up uh, we've got a show with uh, some guys from the Pow, uh, the Powcast, uh, talking about uh, rated R movies, rated R superhero movies, why they feel the need to release rated R superhero movies. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We just recently started uh, uh, broadcasting live on YouTube as well. Uh, so you can catch us on YouTube, but you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and the Radulation Broadcasting Network right here. Um, and you can find us on uh, Twitter at ScreamingBoyPR. Find us on Instagram, Screaming Boy Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Just look up Screaming Boy Podcast once again. Uh, and www.screamingboy.com. We revamped the, the site, and it looks a lot better. Or Well, I mean, not a lot better. It just, In other words, it has content because I, I'm a failure at keeping up with uh, websites. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Uh, Mark Rylitz, you want me to go next, or you want to go next? I'll, I'll just go real quick. Uh, Metal Hammer of Doom this week celebrated one of my favorite bands, KMFDM. They were doing it again. They released a Greatest Hits remix album called Miles Rocks Milestones. Um, I got to introduce the boys to KMFDM, and a grand time was had by all. And now I, I'm, I'm listening to a bunch of their back catalog on Spotify. It reignited my love for the band. Next week, we get, uh, we're going to get silly. We're going to listen to a, uh, a almost a parody band. Like, they take the music seriously, but, they, but the band is Mexican. Uh, the band is Brujeria. It's a Mexican-American death metal band um, where guys from other bands play characters, and these characters are supposed to be Mexican uh, gangster lords, and they play death metal. So <laughs> one of the songs is about Donald Trump. I can't wait. Um, uh, as Robert said, we got a review of the Magnificent seven coming up and the following week after that we'll be reviewing Deepwater Horizon. May Matt Damon uh, in the movie. That's not Matt um, Damon. 
That's Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> which actually just kind of proves my point about Matt Damon. Matt Damon, Wahlberg, <laughs> same guy. Um, I know, just like Matt Channing Damon. Tatum and Taylor Kitsch. Uh, he's Matt Damon. He's on the movie, on the big screen, getting paid. Uh, the same week that we were doing Deepwater Horizon, we were doing Netflix and Marvel's Luke Cage, which that'll be a lot of fun. Um, the next, I feel like uh, I'm going to dislike 20- this one. I don't know why. I just got a feeling. I, I know why. Black folks. Um, <laughs> Metal Hammer of Doom. New Every Time I Die. And uh, that's it for now. That's all I got. Uh, next week on Alan Moore Month will be for Vendetta. And then we close out with From Hell on the 29th. And then Long Road to Ruin will be back. Hey, I actually have a special announcement real quick. You'll indulge me. Indulge. Um, I lost a bet. And no, I don't have to give up any of my children. <laughs> you have no children left. Um, no, that's with uh, Gavin. He doesn't want Mark's kids. <laughs> no, no, God. Um, so Long Road to Ruin will be back in October. We'll be looking. We'll be doing a two-part Hannibal Lecter series, and Rob Winfrey will just take over that entire show. I will, I will sit and listen to Rob Winfrey talk. November is all Harry Potter. Uh, almost every week, except for the week of Thanksgiving, when Fantastic Beast comes out. Um, or rather when we review that, but, um, so the whole month of November is all the Harry Potter movies each week, just about. And then in December, now December, originally we were just going to do one show for Long Road to Ruin. It was going to be, um, the, uh, Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy. Um. What is that? Which. Oh, that is, uh, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Oh my gosh! Hot fuzz, Hot and end, world's end. End. World oh my gosh, that is going to be a fucking blast. Can, okay, yeah, I'm movie. requesting. Great movie. Can I can I come on there with you? <laughs> yes, yeah, going to be some good stuff. Because that so is we, like I, one of my favorite trilogies. I initially only planned that one for the month of December. That's how we were going to end the year, and then we were going to start fresh again with with Underworld and Resident Evil in 2017. But I lost the bet. I hate my life. Gavin, I have finally, I have finally come to realize that Gambit's not going to be made. It's just not. Um, so I, I swore it was going to be, and it was going to make a billion dollars. I had high hopes. But uh, <laughs> this, this, this movie is cursed. And, with, and, and really what happened was Deadpool was such a success that they don't need Gambit anymore. They've got, they can make Deadpool movies for like the next few years and be, and be just fine. Plus they're working on New Mutant. Plus they're not done with this series of X-Men movies. They are, they're not rebooting the series at all. They are moving on with the next X-Men movie. Uh, they've got another Wolverine movie coming out next year. So they really don't need to do a Gambit spinoff. Plus the, the sort of uh, use-by date ha- has gone and passed, and it, there's no point anymore. So I get it. Gambit's not happening. Um, so, so Gavin said if, if if that happens, if Gambit ends up becoming uh, coming a thing of the past, that he got to pick the long road to ruin. And the long road to ruin that he decided to pick was Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So I told him, pick three. Well, pick two, because I was picking one, and I picked Boogie Nights. Uh, he picked The Master, and There Will Be Blood. So Gavin and I, will, on December 8th, are going to get together for a special long road to ruin Gavin's pick and discuss Boogie Nights, The Master, and there will be blood. 
Uh, so look for that uh, around Christmas time. All right. And I really are- like one of those movies. Well, Prince of Positivity, have you learned your lesson yet? And stop betting, doing wagers on movies that are not going to make a dime. No. I, I yeah. should have bet you about <laughs> Ghostbusters because you swore up and down it was going to hit a billion dollars, and I I remember seeing I knew that. It wouldn't. Jeez. Well, hey, I should have come up with something. But, it's it's uh, I okay. Didn't. It's okay to hope, Mark. It's all right. Uh, did you want to? Did you want to quickly <laughs> plug uh, Wrestling to the Max? What we're doing uh, over yeah. there. You can find our um, you can find our podcast uh, soon on the Wrestling to the Max website. We've partnered up with them, and so we're going to be putting some content on that that site as well. All right, very good. All right. Well, as for myself, you can follow me at Stiznarkey on Twitter. Uh, I do a podcast on here called Source Material. It comes on on Mondays usually. We're in the midst. Right here in the middle of September. We are in the midst of the September He-Man Mini Comic Spectacular, where we are discussing some of the great He-Man Mini Comics that came out. Uh, Next... This, well, this past episode uh, involved Ram Man and Trapjaw, and this coming episode is a a, a fun. Uh, I get to pick. I, I picked two stories, and it was Stinkor and Hordax Slime Pit. So the the, the Dutch oven armor and that dastardly <laughs> Hordak. Uh, so you, these these episodes are really short. So if you guys have twenty minutes, thirty minutes to spare, you're going to be able to listen to the whole thing. And and it's not usually those two two-and-a-half-hour epics that we've done in the past. So we're having a lot of fun over there. And uh, also, uh, coming up here pretty soon, in, in, uh, in correlation with the Alan Moore month, me and Josh Calandros and Ronnie Adams, I may talk to you about this later because I like torturing you with Alan Moore, we're going to do a special documentary diary on a documentary called The Mindscape of Alan Moore. Now, the, we plan to actually record this next Monday, so it should be a lot of fun. I've watched it before. It's pretty interesting to get into uh, his thoughts on pornography and, and, and things uh, such as that. So tune in, as that'll be an episode here coming out this month, uh, along with the rest of Alan Moore Month. Uh, also, the He-Man episodes are on YouTube. I say episodes. It's actually one big, long, two-and-a-quarter-hour two and episode. Uh, it's on YouTube. The first ever source material YouTube channel is out there. So if you guys are interested and you want to go check it out, we actually looked at the comic while we discussed it, which was really cool. You can kind of follow along, you know, watch Moss Man and his goofy-ass grin, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. Skeletor ah, with his arms ra- raised in the air. Um, but uh, we had a lot of fun. Me, Ronnie, and Justin Thomas had a good time doing that. So it's hashtag – if you type in hashtag source material in YouTube, all one word, you're easily going to be able to find the episode. You can watch it and subscribe if you want to. Uh, other than that, that's about all I have. Make sure to give the Rattlich and Broadcasting Facebook page a like. Stay up on top of all the great podcasts that this network has to offer. You can catch us on iTunes. You can catch us on Stitcher. Tune in radio. Uh, I want to thank my guests again, Ronnie Adams, Robert Winfrey, and of course, the patriarch Mark Radlich for giving us the opportunity to discuss this tonight. 
Uh, other than that, I want to say, everybody, have a great evening. We'll be talking to you next week when we're discussing V for Vendetta. Ladies and gentlemen, have a good one. Look at all these alternative comic book creators. Alan Moore, Art Spiegelman, oh, Dan Klaus. I really identified with the girls in Ghost World. They made me feel like I wasn't so alone. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Do you know anyone who works at Batman? Because I really want to draw Batman. I'm awesome at utility belts. Check these out. This is where the Batman keeps his money, in case he has to take the bus. Mm-hmm. Alan Moore, you wrote my favorite issues of Radioactive Man. Oh, really? So you like that I made your favorite superhero a heroin-addicted jazz critic who's not radioactive? I don't read the words. I just like when he punches people. How do you make his costume stick so close to his muscles? <sighs> Mr. Moore, will you sign my DVD of Watchmen Babies? Which of the babies is your favorite? You see what those bloody corporations do? They take your ideas and they suck them. Suck them like leeches until they've gotten every last drop of the marrow from your bones. Hey, teacup, why don't you chill out? <sighs> Very well. <laughs>